This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hi everyone, welcome back to Inside China Tech. I'm Zen Su, a tech reporter with the South China Morning Post. And today we are going to take a look back at the biggest China tech happenings of 2018. I have with me today two colleagues, Sarah Dai and Ying Zhiyang, who are both based in the Beijing office. So, uh, Sarah, we were both at CES earlier this year and some pretty big things happened with Huawei at CES. Do you want to give us a short summary of what happened? Mm, I would say Huawei is definitely one of the most high-profile tech companies to remember this year because um, the, the year of 2018 started with a big blast to the company. Um, at the CES, the Chinese... Major U.S. telecom operator AT&T walked away from a distribution partnership uh, with the company uh, that was due to be announced at the, C- at the CES. And it, that was because the U.S. Congress uh, convinced AT&T to walk away and dump Huawei deal on national security grounds. And given the, re- the latest fallout, the na- basically the rest of the CFO, the daughter of uh, Huawei chairman, Ren Zhongfei, um, the, the case is definitely ongoing. And uh, Huawei will unfortunately be one of the most um, tragic Chinese tech companies um, in this year. While Huawei is one of the, 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 the big happenings of this year, several other Chinese companies have also made big splashes, notably some of them which has gone public. And I will let my colleague Ying Zhi introduce us to some of the big tech companies that have IPO this year, Yingzhi. Um, so both um, Xiaomi and Meituan are like star uh, are like star companies um, in in China, and both of them went to public this year. So I will start with Xiaomi's story. Uh, Xiaomi was founded uh, in 2011, and its revenue jumped from zero to 10 billion within just five years. But between 2016 to 2017, it faced a major slowdown in China's market because Chinese smartphone market was saturated and Xiaomi was facing also very fierce competitions uh, from Huawei and its sub-brand owner and Vivo and Oppo, those kind of new competitors in the market. So Xiaomi faced a very uh, hard time at the time, but uh, between 2017 or 2018, Xiaomi bounced back uh, with, um, you know, opening and establishing more offline channels uh, throughout the world and it's aggressive expansion into Indian market as well. So Xiaomi basically, um, you know, went through this ups and downs. And in the end, um, like this year, Xiaomi went public during the summer in July in Hong Kong. Yeah, you mentioned that Xiaomi listed in Hong Kong. What was the reason that they chose to list in Hong Kong? And also why at this particular time? Yeah, so Hong Kong Exchange is particularly interested in new economy kind of companies. So Xiaomi is one of them. And I think they also, they're also regretting that Alibaba uh, wasn't uh, listed in Hong Kong because, because that um, 
during the time, it wasn't allowed a dual class share structure for Alibaba. So Alibaba has to retreat it from uh, Hong Kong to go to New York. So you're saying the Hong Kong Stock Exchange changed its rules? For Xiaomi, I think, or other potential startups like Xiaomi. Uh, for example, uh, a later comer, Meituan. Yeah. So basically, they were they were really regretful of losing Alibaba, which I mean, naturally was one of the biggest technology listings of the last decade. But also a disclaimer: the South China Morning Post is owned by Alibaba. So just to put it out there. Regardless, um, yeah. So so Hong Kong was very regretful of not having Alibaba list in Hong Kong. They missed out on a big listing, and so you say they changed the rules to let Xiaomi in. It allows the company founders to have more voting rights. At the same time, uh, other institutional investors will have more share, uh, more shares, but not voting rights of the company. So it let the founders have more control of their own companies. Uh, so how much did Xiaomi raise? Their um, IPO was very closely watched, I think. It was touted to be one of the largest technology listings on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Yeah, it was. So it aimed to raise like um, $6 billion US dollar, but in the end, eventually, because there's a lot of discussion about the PE ratio of the company, so whether the company really worth the money, in the end, it turns out the market really didn't buy the idea that the Xiaomi is an internet company, so in the end, it just raised about a 4.7 billion US dollar. So I think uh, Leijun must be very upset about that. It's been a really tough year for technology companies who are trying to list on the stock market this year or who have listed on the stock market this year. So even for Meituan, which listed also in Hong Kong in September, uh, they also didn't do up to expectations, right? They're basically a company that does sort of like a platform for people to look up restaurants and to make reservations and do food delivery and local services. So maybe tell us a little bit about the Meituan listing. Yeah, um, so Meituan is a company that is already eight years old and it hasn't been able to turn a profit yet. And uh, the market was quite uh, nervous about that point. Um, so Meituan, although it's a really big giant, it's called the on-demand Alibaba. So it's like it wants to be an on-demand service provider that as big as Alibaba. Um, but in the end, uh, it just raised four, uh, $4.2 billion uh, through the Hong Kong IPO. And before that, almost two months ago, before the listing in Hong Kong, Meituan spent half of its um, money raised from Hong Kong IPO to buy a bike sharing company, which is called Mobike. And Mobike has been bleeding uh, Meituan's balance sheet as well. So Meituan is now trying to shrink the ble- uh, the fleet size of this uh, bike sharing company as well. There's been a lot of concern this year about the growth of technology companies slowing. So obviously in China, um, over the last decade, a lot of technology companies, whether Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, they have had very rapid growth thanks to sort of uh, the rapid mobile phone penetration and, you know, rising affluence of Chinese consumers in general. But uh, that has kind of reached like a point where it's kind of plateaued a little bit, not plateaued, but like growth has sort of slowed a little bit. Um, Yeah. And so people are concerned, you know, with Meituan, whether or not they're able to turn a profit eventually with all this bleeding on the balance sheet for companies like Alibaba, whether or not their offline spending is able to you know, whether they can read back that sort of investment that they're trying to put into new retail, you know, with investing in all of these 
hypermarts like RT Mart and Sunart and um, their own Herma supermarkets. Yeah, so it's been a pretty tough year for tech IPOs. But another tech IPO I want to bring up is Pinduoduo, which listed in July. So they are a Chinese company, but they um, didn't list in Asia. They listed on the Nasdaq in New York. Um, so Pinduoduo is also a popular e-commerce company. They popularized the social commerce sort of model and they became really popular over the last two years. Like they're a three-year-old, three-plus-year-old company. Yeah, so they also listed to great fanfare on NASDAQ because within three years, they went from being a really tiny company to China's number three e-commerce player. However, Pinduoduo has also run into lots of problems. The moment they listed, there was a lot of negative press about the fact that the things that they're selling are inferior and counterfeit. And yeah, so basically, the company has now come out to say that they are trying to clean that up. They've made a lot of promises to clear up that kind of, uh, you know, fraudulent sort of merchants and products on their platform. So yeah, not a great year for tech companies in general. Apart from companies like Meituan, Xiaomi and Pinduoduo, there is also another Chinese company that has listed that is quite interesting. And I'll let Sarah tell us more about it. Yes, that company would be Neo. Uh, although it's, this year is not very good for automobile industry in general due to the economic slowdown um, and the slow, also slowdown in sales, uh, the Chinese electric car companies is a different branch with, uh, with emerging new Commerce. New is one of them, which is um, which is one of the aspiring uh, Tesla challenger in China, and with the delivery of its first mass-produced model this year, the company raised one one billion U.S. dollar in September at New York IPO debut. Um, the company also has delivered a. a at least 3,000 cars uh, for their first mass-produced models and is set to uh, deliver another another 7,000 cars uh, in this quarter. Uh, and it's one of the three companies that so far has delivered their first mass-produced models this year, including uh, which also include WM Moto, Wema, and the Xpeng Xiaopeng Qichu. So China has basically, like you said, three uh, pretty major electric car startups. So that's NIO, um, WM Motors, and Xiaopeng, Xpeng, yeah, Xpeng um, Motors. So these three are fairly high-profile electric vehicle startup companies in China. But the question is, why... Are there so many of these in China? You know, it's obviously costing a lot of money and a lot of research to actually create an electric vehicle. You know, like we know companies like Tesla, it's been years and even though they have many different cars, they have yet to turn a profit. So why are Chinese companies jumping into this very expensive sort of venture? That's a very good question. First, I will say uh, Chinese government has been encouraging the development of the industry in general with very uh, lofty uh, lofty goals to reach the reach the greater ownership of electric cars. And it has also been sending the manufacturing permit to new car makers. And also, if you are a consumer, you want to buy an electric car, you can get the benefits of uh, 
price cut, namely the the subsidy from the government and also local government, central government and local governments, and also you you can they in in most major cities it will put you into a fast track to get a to get a plate. Like in Beijing, if you want to get a plate for a combustion engine car, you have to participate in the draw that will take very likely decades to general users. And but if you are if you want to choose to buy an electric cars, that will put you like now the queue is longer. It will take about two years, but before you can get a car right away. So that's one of the major incentives, and also for the companies, you would be surprised to see like how many Tesla fans you can find in China, even though the the car itself with the tax tariff is not that readily available to most users. So these for to these emerging companies, they think that makes a wonderful opportunity for them to jump on it and also challenge on the traditional giants. And also, they are viewing it as one of the very important scenario for to reach people's daily life, because they are taking it as one of the scenario, like the next big thing after smartphone. You will spend a large chunk of your time on car, and if it goes electric and goes self-driving, it frees you from the wheel, and you can do a lot of things there, including like the old entertainment and the marketing opportunities. One thing I know about these electric car companies is that apart from trying to create a vehicle, they are also putting a lot of research and development into autonomous driving,、um, and not just these car companies, right? Even for companies like Baidu and Pony Dot AI,、um, they're putting lots of resources into basically trying to put forward the first self-driving car that you know can be on the road for consumer use and everything. So, Sarah, maybe tell us. Um, it's been a big year for autonomous driving in China. What are some of the latest updates in 2018? Yes, apart from the, the the Tesla Challenger, there are also a growing number of Waymo Challenger in China, who view the autonomous driving as the next big. Big, biggest thing, and the most also the most difficult and interesting puzzle to work on for these、uh, programmers and IT engineers. So, and、um, the industry itself,、um, the industry of autonomous driving has seen a record fundraising this year, and that means with growing fleet size and also trial trial for. For the tr- robo taxi services,、mm, and you will see leading players、uh, like like Pony Dot AI, like We Ride Dot AI, and、uh, like Roadstar Dot AI, and they have been putting、uh, trial services for their robo taxis and see growing fleet. So, for companies earlier, you mentioned Pony Dot AI, Roadstar Dot AI. What do these companies do exactly? Do they just create the autonomous driving technology? And they work with、um, automakers to put this technology into their cars, or how does it? 
Yes, they are working toward that goal. Like so far, the the commercialization for autonomous driving globally is not that clear. Like basically, some are parting up, par- partnering with automakers and to put it into uh to vehicles for mass users. But that would um, that is believed to have to take longer. So before that, uh. A more clear roadmap is to develop robo taxi service in certain areas with quite enough sensors and safety protocols to ensure such services. So, what were the milestones for the industry this year in 2018? Yeah, for for Baidu, it has delivered the first mass-produced autonomous bus this year as scheduled. And uh, the bus is currently operating in cities like Beijing and Chengdu and also has planned to be sold to Japan. So this bus um, is right now running on the streets without drivers, like it's fully autonomous? Yes, it has no, it has no driving wheel, um, but it now operates in restricted areas like park. Industrial park. Have you ever tried it out? Yes, I have to. <laughs> How was the experience? Was it was it really steady or for an autonomous bus? First, I would say it's pretty safe, mm, but uh, the bummer is uh, it drives really slow. So it's not the maximum speed would be like twenty uh, or thirty. Uh, kilometers per per hour, which is very slow, and due to also due to the regulations, um, but it's kind it's kind of cool to to see like the the bus has no wheel, driving wheel at all, and uh, run by the computer itself. Twenty to thirty kilometers, you take like hours to get anywhere, basically. So is it really short, like sort of bus routes? Like it's not really like it doesn't travel across Beijing or anything. Yes, it's more like a shuttle bus. Uh, and also, there has been plan for the mass-produced small ve- smaller vehicles, but it is only on schedule so far. So we'll wait and see. So another huge thing that's happening this year is the bike sharing bubble. So basically, I think over the last two years, bike sharing has become like really popular, and we had all of these like. Bike sharing players like Ofo and Mobike and all of these smaller players. At one point, there were like over thirty companies trying to do this, but of course, the market has since consolidated to just two players. And one of the players right now, Ofo, is in big trouble. And Yingzhi, this you cover Ofo as a company, so would you like to tell us a little bit about what's happening with Ofo? So uh, Ofo started um, three years ago in 2015, which is a little bit earlier than Mobike, but it hasn't been able to expand from the university compounds. So it's just stay in the university, and which is also one thing that Ofo is re- regretting right now. When you say staying in the university, you mean that they were primarily marketing to students in yeah. university compounds. Yeah, yeah. So people like you know, Beijing residents who are not university students were not able to ride Ofo bikes uh, at the time. And um, I was uh, lucky to meet uh, the, the, the founder of Ofo at the very end of 2016 when he was really confident about the company and he h- held the first uh, press conference to introduce Ofo to overseas market. And at the time, um, he, he 
was wishing that the uh, that the company can expand to every corner of the world, at which they choose San Francisco as the first destination, of course. Um, but uh, then things got really crazy. Uh, it got um, not only uh, financing. Um, Supports from Didi Chuxing, which is a ride-hailing giant in China, which now is also in trouble, um, and uh, it also um, attracted um, funding from Ant Financial and Alibaba Group, um, and also other uh, big investors like Code Two Management and DST Global, um, the international uh, finan- uh, international financial institutes. Yeah, I remember that these companies. Like Ofo and Mobike, they were expanding to all these big U.S. cities and to different countries, you know, in Europe, even to Asia. And in Singapore, where I'm from, um, Ofo and Mobike also entered the market. And yeah, they were, you know, offering like free rides and discounts if you rented their bikes, basically. But right now, um, Ofo seems to be in trouble. I mean, I think um, the founder, Tai Wei, just got on the government blacklist where he is not able to do things like take first class train seats or, you know, go on luxury vacations. So how did he end up on this blacklist? Like what what trouble is Ofo in right now? Yeah, so Ofo um, is running out of cash um, and it wasn't able to uh, pay bills to a lot of suppliers, including those logistics firms um, and also uh, back, uh, bike uh, makers as well. Um, so a lot of people sued them. Um, through Beijing courts, and then the Beijing Haidian court ordered that injunction that you just... Yeah, I remember that um, Ofo owes its bicycle manufacturer, Phoenix. It's a Shanghai-based bicycle maker, right? They basically owe them $10 million. And um, I think in the last couple of days, there have been lines around the block of users asking for their refunds. Can you tell us more? A lot of people, a lot of the OFO users have already applied for a deposit refund through the OFO app online. But some of them were not able to get it after the waiting period, which is like 15 days. So they, they were worried about their deposit. So they went to OFO office personally to get the refund back because they heard from news that they can get the refund right away but, uh, after they go to the office. Is it true? So that people actually get money back when they went to queue because you know we saw pictures online and it was like full of people like hundreds and hundreds of people who were like basically queuing up because you know it's one of these things where people freak out about the future of the company and then they the moment people start freaking out everybody starts wanting to get their money back so did people actually succeed in doing that i haven't seen anyone succeed in doing so because due to uh, because you know according to ofo's instruction people who wait outside um, even at the ofo office still have to join the queue of people who are waiting online so i don't think uh, that's quite useful if you want to get your deposit refund so ofo has also um encountered some restrictions by the Chinese government in which they have started restricting the total number of bikes that can be placed in a first-year city like Beijing or Shanghai, basically, because the problem was that when at the peak of the bike-sharing bubble, um, with all these companies putting bikes, it became a little bit of like a nuisance to the people living in the cities because people would park their bikes anywhere, you know, and they had like... Lots, you know, even if bikes were broken or everything, they were like just left by the road and there was basically a large amount of wastage and obstruction in the streets. But um, bike sharing companies now aren't the only ones who are getting uh, stricter restrictions. 
I think the ride-sharing industry has also encountered several problems this year, which Sarah can tell us about, especially Didi Chusing. Earlier, a couple months back, Didi Chusing ran into um, huge troubles after some of their passengers basically were sexually assaulted and murdered. So Sarah, tell us what happened this year for Didi. Yes, not only for the ride, uh, ride bike-sharing company, for ride-sharing as well, it comes to a weakening point for Chinese regulators to start regulating these uh, so-called innovative industries, like ride-sharing. For, for ride-sharing, it comes after the two recent rape and murder of DD passengers by its drivers um, on the platform. Um, now the the re- Chinese regulator has just come uh, after fr- after from a two week on site inspections to all major ride sharing platforms like the there are eight of them and the DD is one of the leading one and also most uh, heavily inspected uh, I would say so after the the the, the, the tragedy. Um, and now they have, uh, by the end of the year, to clean up unlicensed vehicles on its platform and also uh, disqualified drivers. They are putting facial recognitions to start verifying drivers at the beginning of every ride or the beginning of every day um, to just double-check the identity of the drivers and also have to put in place emergency Emergency mechanisms to for if you have to call nine one one or if you can uh, call nine one one via your text message. They are also start to recording the in car conversations for the later disputes. So basically, before um, there were a lot of people who were like who would register to be drivers, but then the actual driver would not be the person who was registered, right? So basically, there was a lot of problems with that. Am I right? Yes, exactly. And also, when you hail a car, there may become a different car and from to get, the, get your order somehow. Yeah, so basically, it was difficult for consumers to sort of determine whether or not the car that they were getting into was safe because if the driver is not the same person as who was assigned to them or the car wasn't the same as who it was assigned to them, it's difficult for them to sort of, you know, check or inform other people of where they are. And after that murder incident that that Sarah just talked about, basically, like she said, the companies like Didi Chusing, they started implementing like a one button where passengers can immediately... Yeah, like a like a SOS button where if anything goes wrong, they can immediately call for help from the police. Yes, and you can also real-time share your routes with your emergency contacts. Yeah, and so the interesting thing is that even though like these two big incidents happened in China, but because China is such a huge ride-hailing market, um, other companies in other countries have also proactively started to adopt similar measures. Like in Singapore, Grab also adopted similar similar measures. Like after that incident happened, I think Didi basically put a stop to their um, late night car hitching services, right? Yes, and also for their uh, hitch riding uh, services, uh, cheaper services like for you to pair up drivers and uh, riders heading to the same direction. Yeah, so basically companies like Grab have also sort of followed suit and it's basically raised awareness, I think, globally for the dangers in in the industry. 
So we've covered quite a bit of ground today, but we've really pretty much actually only scratched the surface for everything that's happened in 2018. It's been a really eventful year. You know, recently we've also had the trade war. We have also had China's gaming crackdown, as well as stuff like um, Alibaba's Jack Ma, who's the executive chairman, who was planning his resignation. But we don't have time, unfortunately, today to go into all of these topics. However, do stay tuned for our next podcast, which will be a forecast into the year 2019 and what's probably going to happen in the tech industry next year. Um, but otherwise, if you would like to read more good, great tech content from us, from people like Sarah and Yingzhi and myself, please go to scmp.com slash tech. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at Zensu and Sarah's handle is at Sarah Dai. And Yingzhi's Twitter handle is um, at Yingzhi underscore Yang. So that's at Y-I-N-G, Z-H-I underscore Y-A-N-G. Cool. We will see you next week for a podcast. Please stay tuned. Bye.